0: Good morning. On this, the second Sunday after Pentecost, June 14th, in the year of our Lord 2020, we gather together as the covenant community in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We gather our hearts and minds together in today's calling. Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in your steadfast Faith and love, that through your grace we may proclaim your truth with boldness and minister your justice with compassion, for the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. During the Sundays after Pentecost this year, we will turn our attention to our ongoing study of John's first epistle. We have entitled this series, This is the Life. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 35, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. The believer is to participate in an active deconstruction of their life as they knew it, and in so doing find another life. What does that life look like? In John's first epistle, his subject matter seems to revolve around three themes, life, light, and love. So we're going to pick up where we last left off on February 23rd by reading a passage found in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 a reading from the first letter of St. John. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. The title of today's message is The Gritty Subject of Sin. The fundamental premise is this if we follow after Christ and are actively losing our life, uh, dismantling, or even so far as destroying our life as we knew it, The new life in Christ that replaces it expresses what one man described as a truceless antagonism with sin by continually putting indwelling sin to death. The emphatic teaching of this passage can be quite disconcerting. John seems to be making statements that he considers non-debatable, non-negotiable truisms. His use of repetitive words and phrases, uh, they seem to pummel us into submission. To John, this gritty subject of sin and what he has to say about it is not a subject that's up for discussion. He is militating against those who are trying to deceive his readers and is calling for clarity, making sure the trumpet delivers a certain sound. In verse 4 of our text today, he begins by saying, everyone, meaning that no one is excluded. No one can politely excuse themselves from this lecture by pleading, well, this doesn't really apply to me. And then he repeats the phrase, no one, four times, twice in verse 6, and once each, each in verse 7, and in verse 9. The emphasis is similar to a person saying, no way. It means that the conclusion proffered is not subject to further amendment, that the truth of the matter is so obvious to everyone that no one should disagree. And then he uses the word whoever three times in verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 10. And with all of these everyone's and no one's and whoever's, We might be tempted to walk away from this passage muttering, whatever. As obvious as the truth was to the Apostle John, this passage becomes one of the most controversial and debated passages in the New Testament. It sounds as as if he is asserting that if a believer commits a sin, Either they weren't a believer to begin with, or they lost whatever salvation they had in the process of sinning. So the question that begs to be answered is, can we make any sense of this passage? Well, there are a few things that we might consider that may help us. First of all, John wants us to know that we are saved. He says towards the end of the book in chapter 5 and verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Secondly, John is not militating for sinless perfection in the life of believers. He does present the possibility of believers sinning when he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So if John had his druthers, Christians would not sin. But then he goes on to say in verse 2 of uh, chapter 2, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John does believe that a person should quote unquote walk the talk. He said in verse six of chapter two, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Thirdly, before he embarks on uh, his subject, uh, what we call the gritty subject of sin. John wants us to know that we are loved and have been delivered from the condemning power of sin. We are children of God right now. What is John doing? John is encouraging Christians to put to death the power of indwelling sin. John is talking about what ought to be what should be and if we talk about what should be we are implicitly recognizing that it does not presently exist and the same way the apostle peter talking about the coming end of the age says in second peter chapter 3 and verse 11 since all these things are thus to be dissolved What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Not only does John use the word ought in chapter 2 and verse 6, but he also says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers in chapter 3 and verse 16. And again, we also ought to love one another, chapter 4 and verse 11. So John clearly recognizes that these qualities are things that a believer should recognize and work on. If we profess to be believers, our everyday walk should focus on killing the activity of indwelling sin. And John is very insistent on this. He's not going to let us off the hook. So with that in mind, how are we to understand this passage? I think John is saying that there are some indisputable facts about sin that should motivate us to lead lives of less sinning. We know, he says in chapter 3 and verse 5, that the very purpose of the incarnation was to take away our sins, to provide a covering or a propitiation for sin. In fact, he goes on to say, the reason the Son of God was manifested was to destroy the works of the devil. We know that all sin has Satan's fingerprints on it. John is, characteristically, definitely calling us out. He's calling us out to come over and stand up and to be counted on the Lord's side. He also declares that a believer has been born of God, that a new life principle has been planted in the believer by virtue of the new birth. The language is specific. A divine insemination has transpired. A baby is being nurtured to grow up into the full stature of the man, Jesus Christ. Believers, John says, are to practice righteousness. Now, on these points, there is no dispute. We can't argue with John about the facts, but we do find ourselves arguing with John about the application. One of the great things about heaven will be actually able to sit down with the Apostle John and say, what did you really mean? So... Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 3 of 1 John. In the King King James Version, it says, Whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now with that, in that particular King James translation, Either I don't know what being born of God accomplishes or John is just wrong and he's creating unrealistic expectations. The New International Version tries uh, to help. Its translation of verse 9 is, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. And then the English Standard Version continues in a similar vein. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So we might conclude uh, looking at those three different translations that the NIV and the ESV um, make more sense of the text. Uh, But let me ask you this. Have you ever committed the same sin more than once? More than ten times? More than a hundred times? I think I know the answer to that question. So, what to do? Well, John presents a hope that we have. And a hope means that it's Something that we're looking forward to as far as its fulfillment. It doesn't presently exist. The circumstances don't allow for its existence. Look in verse 3 of chapter 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, in Christ, purifies himself as he, as Christ, is pure. Uh, I want to say this, God is not opposed to effort, to our effort. What he is opposed to is our thinking that we earn something by it. Frankly, our justification is all God's work. We simply affirm that. We receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. However, the further work of the Spirit, sanctification, invites a kind of Spirit-infused cooperation in the life of the believer. I'm going to tell you something that you probably already know. The act of purifying is hard work. In Christ, that unique New Testament phrase, probably the two most powerful words in the New Testament, if not in all the Bible. In Christ, I can never again be brought under condemnation. I have been delivered from the authority of condemning sin, but indwelling sin, the sin that still remains, the residual effect of sin is something that must be mortified. Now, that's an old King James Version word, which simply means it's got to be killed. The secret of this work of mortification seems to be, John tells us in verse 6 of chapter 3, to be abiding with Jesus. And the word abide actually means to make our home with Jesus. So the more time spent with Jesus, here's the lesson that we can apply. The more time spent with Jesus has the effect of not a sinless life, but a life of less sin. So here is our obligation. Justin Taylor puts it well. Believers who are free from the condemning power of sin ought, there's that word again, should make it their daily work to mortify, to put to death the indwelling power of sin. Now you might object at this point and say to me, well, uh, that sounds like work salvation and I'm not saved by works. It is true that we are not saved by our own works, and it is true that we are saved by the works of Christ that we appropriate by faith. But that doesn't mean that we should not work. Uh, One writer said God's working in us in sanctification is not suspended because we work nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. God works in us, and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. So I conclude uh, this introductory message on the subject of the gritty subject of sin this morning with a quote from John Owen Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live, cease not a day from this work, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Amen. Thank you, Father, that your promise to us is that you would never leave us nor forsake us, that you would be with us even to the end of the age. We who have been saved from the just sentence of death, have been delivered from the authority of condemning sin in our lives, we once again commit ourselves to putting to death indwelling sin, and we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit even now to make this more true day by day. We ask in Christ's name, amen.